Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined for a second time by Dr. Michael Muthukrishna. He is an Associate Professor of Economic Psychology at the London School of Economics, and today we're talking about his new book, A Theory of Everyone, The New Science of Who We Are, how we got here and where we're going. And uh, of course, I'm leaving a link to it in the description box of this interview and also a link to our first interview back in 2019. So Dr. Muthukrishna, welcome back to the show. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me back, Ricardo. It's been four years. <laughs> so, and I have to tell you, I have been looking forward to this book for quite a long time and it was really a fascinating read so thank you so much for writing it and getting into it then uh, what was the primary motivation for writing this book because curiously uh, when you start reading it you basically open it by talking about some of the biggest challenges we as humans have to, as a species, actually have to face today. So what motivated you to write the book? Yeah, so, I mean, um, as I described in the introduction, the book is, it tells my intellectual trajectory. So, you know, I used to, I used to be an engineer. Uh, yeah. I, I was quite a good engineer. I had, you know, great job offers, places like Microsoft, places like that. Um, but I, I, I kind of had this, this moment toward the end of, uh, um, into my undergraduate when I was working part time, and I was like, "Is this is this what I want to do with my life? You know, do I just want to kind of go out there and make a bunch of money and then die?" And I, you know, I, I'm not. I'm actually as a person, I'm not super motivated by money because I, I have this sense like we're all going to leave the world at some point, and how do we want to to leave this world? Um, and so I, I began to think about you know what what do I want to do with my life? And as I was reflecting on all the things that I had kind of been through, so I, I've lived in a lot of different places growing up. So, you know, my family's from Sri Lanka, which, you know, went through a 25-year civil war uh, between two people who, to me, looked non-distinguishable, and yet, you know, who were at each other's throats. And, I, and to be honest, I, as, a, as a child, until I was about seven or eight years old, I didn't know there were different ethnicities within Sri Lanka. And then I grew up in Botswana uh, at a time when South Africa was going through uh, apartheid. So that was a very interesting time, of course, lots of different uh, ethnic relationships there. I was in uh, Papua New Guinea during a time of a uh, the Sandline Affair, a government coup. Uh, and of course, you know, later on, I lived in Australia and Canada, the United States, and I live in the UK now. And one of the common themes behind this was, uh, was, was culture, was this issue of... Uh, People around the world are sometimes fundamentally different in how they view the world, how they think about the world, what's important to them. Like they seem to be running different software. And it seemed to me as someone who'd kind of grown up in each of these places, each person or each, each people in each of these places, unless they themselves had traveled around, didn't fully appreciate that. And a lot of the conflicts that were taking place came about because we just didn't have a good science of culture. We didn't have that kind of uh, general theory. So I, I was trained as an engineer. I, I did a dual degree um, where I majored in psychology, but I took courses in, in economics and political science and philosophy, biology, a bunch of things, just trying to figure out, you know, how the world worked. Um, and, and in engineering, I knew that there was good science. I could take this science and then I could build things with it and people could actually use that. And when it came to the world of policy, it didn't seem quite so straightforward. We just didn't have that underlying theory. So I thought, okay, I'd love to work on this. 
And alongside that, um, I had, you know, recently, I think it was in 2007, I watched Al Gore's documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was convinced. I was like, okay, this is this is this is a real problem. Like climate change is coming. And so I started reading, like you know, the IPCC reports. I was reading uh, the Pentagon reports, and I was like, okay, I think Gore is right about this problem. But I also think that he's wrong about the solution. I just it just seemed implausible to me that we were going to slow the economy to save the planet. And so I was like, okay, everybody's working on climate mitigation, and if we achieve that, fantastic. But what are we going to do when we live in a climate-changed world? What are we going to do when um, millions of people are underwater in somewhere like uh, in Bangladesh or in the South Pacific? Where are they going to go? What does that mean when that many people stream into India? What does that mean for Pakistan, the Middle East, and then Europe? And to me, this seemed like all of the issues that I'd seen in these each of these different places were uh, were – we're, we're on steroids. You know, this would be a far more difficult challenge. And if we couldn't solve it in each of these countries, if we couldn't solve these problems of, say, multiculturalism in each of these countries, how could we possibly solve it? This was like a threat to, to civilization. So I wanted to work on this. And then I, I, I went through this. Period. So I was working on smart home technologies. And I was like, you know what? I can't do this. I'm going to I'm going to go do something, uh, do something else. There's a long winded answer. I know, Ricardo, but uh, the. The moment where I, you know, where I kind of went, okay, maybe we could do this was I was working on uh, an area called control theory. So this is the math of feedback loops. Yeah. And I was like, wait a minute, you know, we could use this math to start to model the way that humans mutually socially influence one another. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, we could kind of develop a science of norms. We could develop a science of culture. And that might be the step toward a kind of science that we could rely on and we could build theory, uh, build, and we could engineer products, in this case, kind of policies that might actually uh, help us get along better, help help the world deal with the, with the coming challenges. So the answer to your question, like, when did I want to write this book? This book was kind of always rattling around my head, but I didn't feel like I had all the pieces there. And a piece of advice that I received during the course of my career is don't write a book because you feel like you need to write a book because it's the thing that people do or it's a moment in your career. Write the book when you feel like it's bursting out of you, like you can't not write the book. Yes. And that was really how it felt. So it was around uh, 2019 where I was just, I, I, you know, uh, I, I just knew this was the moment. Like I, I, I wanted to get this, get this out there. I needed to get this out there. And so I started, you know, started talking to people, talking to agents, and then and, and so on. Um, and of course, once you're tenured, uh, and, I, and I got tenure early, I was like, okay, now I have the space to do this. I'm not the mm-hmm. clock is ticking. I don't have to be publishing uh, uh, constantly. What I can do is actually just take the space to write this thing down. Um, the book was delayed, by the way, because there was a there was a pandemic. You might have heard. Uh, we also had. Yeah, a, I think a that child. people might have heard of that. <laughs> yeah, so uh, everything got a little bit delayed, but yeah, so that that that's basically that's basically the the long winded story. So I, what I what I guess was motivating me was we had now reached the point over the last ten years, um, where we actually did have something that resembled a theory of everyone. We had a theory of human behavior. And I saw how it applied to so many aspects of the world. And yet, you know, when I had conversations with uh, with people in government, I had conversations with people in the corporate world, they were asking questions that were highly relevant, but they weren't asking them in the right way because they they couldn't see the forest for the trees. They couldn't see how, you know, something to do with um, culture in a corporate environment is the same as culture in a national environment, or the way that humans have always innovated and technology uh, develops is the same way that we develop uh, social change or 
the way that we stereotype one another or the way that we interact. These are all connected to each other. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are these in the book, I describe how there are these kind of moments that happen in a science where arguably that's the moment it actually becomes a real science. And it's the discovery of this more general theoretical framework. Right. So uh, in in physics, for example, you know, we used to believe that uh, the weather, the weather was caused by these capricious gods. Uh, Thor is banging on his hammer and that's why there's thunder and lightning. And then, you know, along come people like uh, Newton and Maxwell and Einstein, and they kind of bring order to this chaos, right? Yeah. And they did it by by building on this kind of general theoretical framework. I mean, it's amazing. Take Maxwell. At a time of um, whale oil and horse-drawn carriages, this guy's writing down equations for electromagnetism that, you know, Einstein would later solve. And eventually that would lead to a world of electricity, the kind of world that we live in today. I think chemistry is an even better example of this transition from alchemy to chemistry, this transition from kind of a science to not a science. Like the world of chemistry was chaotic and confusing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, why, uh, why is it that you mix a metal with an acid and you're getting these gases? I mean, Newton himself is trying, Newton, he's not, a, he's not a dumb guy, but he's trying to turn lead into gold. And the reason that he's trying to turn lead into gold is not because he's, he's not bright, he obviously is, it's because he doesn't have a periodic table. He can't see the patterns that exist in the chemical world. And the same thing in biology, right? The world seemed chaotic and confusing. It's like humans are a special species, and but why is it that some species have wings and some are laying eggs and some have live births and the peacock has this elaborate tail and the peahen is this drab brown? Why is it? the best we can do is kind of document the world you know we're butterfly collecting as biologists and then along comes darwin and he proposes a theory and later you know wright and hamilton and fisher uh formalize that theory mathematically and biology becomes a real science it it develops that underlying theory to turn this chaotic and confusing world to bring order to it and go okay i now know the rules by which this, this world operates so that is the moment that we are in and have been for a long time uh, in the human and social sciences, when I say a long time, a few years, where we can't predict individual humans, but we know exactly how they work. We, we can say something about the trajectories of society. The human and social sciences, in other words, have an underlying theory that turn that chaotic and confusing human world. Like, why is it that democracies are teetering? And why is my job harder than it once was? And why is it difficult to buy a house? And why does innovation seems like it seem like it's slowed down? And why is there social conflict all of a sudden? And all of these things don't seem connected to one another. They just seem like, you know, history is, I think Toynbee said, you know, history is one damn thing after another. That's what it seems like until you have this underlying theory. Yeah. And people didn't know about it. And I wanted to write it in a way that was, accessible enough that you could check everything I was saying, not by believing that this study said this thing, you should be skeptical given all of these, you know, uh, Gino and Ariely and all of these kind of, don't, don't rely on the studies. You can check it because it's going to make sense in your own life. You're going to be able to just like listen to what I say and go, oh, actually, yeah, that makes sense. And that's why X, Y, Z. So I wanted to write a book that really made this as accessible as I possibly could. And that's what a theory of everyone is. Okay, but tell us a little bit more about some of the, let's say, ingredients in terms of the different theories from different fields that you bring together to try to build a theory of everyone. Because, of course, we have 
important findings from the several social sciences out there. Yeah. We need sociology, we need economics, we need psychology, anthropology, political science, evolutionary theory, and all of that. But uh, at the end of the day, I mean, all of them have their own issues and limitations. And also we have the ongoing issue of not having, or perhaps we are in, uh, amid, uh, in the midst of developing that, but we still do not have a, an encompassing theory of human behavior that really stands at the base of all these different fields yeah. and disciplines. And that's what you're trying to get at here. Well, I mean, what I argue is that, in fact, we do have that theory. Okay. Uh, you know, so it's like, the, it's kind of like, think of it as like, uh, so people ask me, so what is the theory of everyone? And I say, you know, okay. it's like describing the standard model or something like that. And if I were to kind of just put it into uh, the simplest possible terms, it is that in order to understand an individual human's behavior, you need to think of them as a product of millions of years of genetic evolution, thousands of years of cultural evolution that is specific okay. in different places around the world, and of course, a lifetime of experience. And these three sources of information come together to uh, to allow our organism, you know, our species, to make decisions. Oh. And what we have are mathematical theories to describe the genetic evolution of our species, the interplay between the cultural evolution of our species and that genetic evolution, and how that plays out in the you know the individual learning that in, that a person goes through in aggregating this kind of information. And we also have formal theories about what that means at a population level. So if you have a species that's engaging in this kind of learning process, what does that mean for innovation? What does that mean for working together and cooperation? And how does that interact with things like energy and resources? So we, in fact, do have that theory. So, you know, you, earlier you mentioned uh, several different disciplines, and they all, they all play a part in this book. But I, I, don't, I don't really – I don't think of myself as an interdisciplinary researcher. I think of myself as like a non-disciplinary researcher, an undisciplined researcher, in that I have a question. My question is, how did humans build the world that we built? That we built? Mm -hmm. Can we formalize that? Can we test that? Can we falsify the predictions of whatever the theories are that led to humans today? And then what does that mean for our future trajectory? What does that mean? Are we destined to fight with each other till the end of time? Can we crack this slowdown in, in the rate of innovation? Is it better that we, you know, we have a, an unequal society like the United States or something that's more re redistributive? Uh, which of those will lead to greater human flourishing? Those are the kinds of questions that I'm interested in. You know, how, how do you build this? What are the conditions when people from very different parts of the world who belong to multiple overlapping groups, their ethnicity, their religion, their, their occupation. When do they work harmoniously? And when, does, when do those fractures that always exist in a society crack and become something more? Um, how, do we, how do we solve problems at a global level? These are the kinds of problems I'm interested in. And these theories have something to say about them. It's just that the, the, the constituent parts, it's, it's at the moment, the world you're describing is, is this chaotic, confusing world. You know, economists are saying this thing and political scientists say this thing and sociology says this other thing. There's a saying that the, um, where one discipline ends and another begins is what each considers signal and what each considers noise. You know, so they're like, oh, I don't worry about this culture stuff. I'm interested in, in the institutions. Oh, the institutions can be taken for granted. I'm interested in the evolved psychology. But once you kind of step back and you put those pieces together, you can tie them into this tapestry that once you see, it's kind of impossible to unsee. 
So, you know, the analogy I use in the book is, you know, the, you know, the parable of the, the, the blind men and the elephant, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Each discipline necessarily is focusing on a different part of it. So each discipline says, you know, they feel the trunk, they feel the, the legs, they feel the, uh, the body, they feel the tail. And one, and one discipline says, oh, you know, it's, it looks like it's a snake. It looks like it's a, it's a tree. It looks like it's a wall. It looks like uh, it's a rope. But once you step back, that's when you see the elephant in the room. So that's what this book is trying to do. It's trying to put those pieces together. But it's not worried about these specific disciplines. Yeah, but, but I mean, that's the thing, right? Because we are used to thinking about different disciplines and what different people from different fields and subfields study. And for example, oh, that is from social psychology. That is from cultural anthropology. That is from cultural evolutionary theory. That is from evolutionary psychology. And we, we tend to think in this kind of boxes. And then, I mean, if we take a step back and look at the big picture, it seems that uh, there's a piece there and another piece there, but they don't, it's really hard to see how they fit together without having uh, an underlying common theory of human behavior. Correct. Correct. No, see, that's exactly right. So, you know, it's hard to step back and see that. And I think it's actually impossible unless you have this this kind of general theory, right? So, if, you know, if you imagine for, for our species, we begin to rely on culture, right? And so we, we you imagine, you've, you know, you've got this prefrontal cortex, it's, it's doing a lot of work, it's simulating the world, and it's able to learn from other individuals and black box a lot of the world. You know, why do I brush my teeth? Uh, something about black, I don't know. You know, why do I have to go to university? Why do I have to go to school? Well, everybody does that. It seems like it leads to good out. You don't have to worry about why this works. Like, is democracy, are people all actually equal? Is democracy really the best system? You don't have to worry about those questions. You just, unless things are going badly for you or you lose trust in in each other or in our institutions for most of it, you just kind of accept it. But in order to understand us, you know, this is the theory of human behavior. In order to understand us, um, you have to begin to look at that software and how it's written. So, you know, another analogy that I that I use is if you want to, everybody's focused on the brain, you know, especially with AI. Everybody's focused on the brain. But if you want to understand the power of Excel or pivot tables or something like that, that's not found in the CPU. You have to look at the software and how it got written. You know, if you want to understand Code Interpreter and, and, and ChatGPT, it's not in the GPU. You have to understand how that software was built, how it's written. The same with humans. You have to understand how the software running on your mind that tells you what is important, how to talk to other people, which technologies to use, um, your values, your beliefs, your behaviors, every little decision you make from the moment you wake up, including what time to wake up and how much sleep to get. Once you understand how that software is written, that is our theory of everyone. And that is what we're what we're describing. So even, you know, obviously, even in writing this book, I'm using that very approach. So in, uh, you know, I think it's chapter four on innovation, I introduce um, uh, this, this what I call co- the compass framework, which I teach to companies and other organizations for innovation, right? And one of the most important or effective ways to being more creative is intellectual arbitrage. So here you're taking solutions that exist in one place and bringing them where they haven't been yet applied. Mm-hmm. So the whole book is this massive exercise in intellectual arbitrage. I'm just stealing willy-nilly from all of these things, but mapping it against what we call dual inheritance theory, the fact that we are the product of genes, culture, and individual experience. Two of those are inheritance lines, dual inheritance. I'm stealing all of those to kind of show you this bigger picture and then showing you how we can we can use this to understand the trajectory of all of life. So one of the one of the first things I introduce are um, 
what I call the four laws of life. Right. And, you know, I, I'm going to get in trouble for my colleagues for calling them laws. I don't mean them like Newtonian laws. Actually, I was going to ask you about that because when <laughs> we hear of laws, it's always from physics and yeah, people yeah. get really mad when we go, you go a level That's beyond right. physics and you start talking about laws and they're like, what laws? Come on, what are <laughs> you talking about? That's right. That's right. No, no. So, you know, and I'm, and I'm very explicit in the book. You know, I say, look, you, got, you should think about these as they're laws in the sense that they govern all of the evolution of life, including the evolution of our species and our societies. Yeah. But these are laws more as like lenses upon which you can view the world. With, with these kind of lenses or levers or laws or whatever, you can map back all of these things that this, this, uh, the, the dual inheritance theory or the process of evolution are teaching you. And those laws are the law of energy. Mm-hmm. So all of life is trying to capture and control energy and use it to make more of itself. And all of what we are capable of doing is a product of our access to energy. Our entire society runs on excess energy. The reason that we live in this relatively peaceful, harmonious, wealthy, and technologically sophisticated world today is because we unlocked millions of years of stored sunlight in the form of fossil fuels, Mm -hmm. and we developed technologies to put that to work for us. And in doing so, we multiplied our efforts in unimaginable ways. And that leads to the second law, which is the law of innovation. So once you have access to that to that to that energy, uh, you can you you innovate new ways to use it more efficiently. So for example, some of the earliest organisms uh, used heat. They had you know gravity moving them around thanks to the the movement of tides, for example, in the moon. Um, it had heat thanks to geothermal vents and the heat of the sun. Eventually, you get this kind of proto photosynthesis where you're beginning to store that energy in the form of chemicals, right? ATP, and then eventually you get full blown photosynthesis. This leads to an innovative process. First off, there's the innovation of mitochondria and ATP itself, but then there's also uh, the innovation that takes place where other organisms go, hey, wait a minute, I don't have to uh, turn the energy of the sun directly into chemical energy and move at plant pace. I can eat these little stored bundles of energy. I can eat other organisms. You know, this eventually leads to like eukaryotic organisms. It eventually leads to multicellularity and complex multicellularity, multicellularity, and eventually to us, yeah. right? Where we actually are more like an ecosystem. We're like an Amazon rainforest with an entire <laughs> microbiome in us. Yeah. So the third law of evolution is, you know, which leads to the third law of evolution, which is the law of cooperation. So in the quest for energy and in the in, in innovations and in efficiency in the in the efficient use of that energy, we cooperate to do so. The earliest cooperation is, for example, you know, one organism eating another, leading to, to mitochondria and ATP. Uh, it's you hosting several you know, billion bacteria within you to help you digest food. And of course, it's, it's cooperation across your body between all of these different divergent and spe- uh, specialized cells. And it's you cooperating with other members of your species. So we cooperate, and, and the law of cooperation is basically that we cooperate at the level, at the scale where the energy per organism, individual, cell, whatever you want, is higher than it would be if I were working in a smaller level or mm-hmm. at a higher level. Yeah. So if, if, if a lower level dominates, that's when we get sick, the cancers dominate, the bacteria dominates. But if you have plenty of energy, you stay healthy, and the higher levels dominate. If there is such a thing as fossil fuels, we can work together to harness that, and we can work together to use that, and we can work together to outcompete other members of our species. This is the story of colonialism, for example, right? Mm-hmm. A little part of Eurasia 
uh, highly energized thanks to cheap and available coal and, and industrialization is able to dominate non-industrial societies, leading to this kind of great divergence. And eventually, as those societies learn from uh, these, uh, uh, these other societies and, and acquire their technologies, it leads to a, a great convergence, which is the fourth law. So we have energy, innovation, cooperation, and evolution. And is this process of genetic and cultural evolution that is walking through the space and discovering new efficiencies and the efficient use of energy, discovering new energy technologies and discovering new ways to cooperate, testing whether we should be cooperating at a higher or lower level. And then the whole book kind of un unravels that uh, in everything from, you know, how do we improve our education systems to how do we improve our democracies? How do we create a less uh, unequal world? How do we innovate better? And when it comes to cooperation specifically, because I think this is a thing that people should be very interested in understanding, because, for example, nowadays we have a global scale issues to tackle, like climate change, and people are very interested in trying to understand and learn more about how we can cooperate more uh, cross countries and stuff yeah. like that. I mean, to, to sometimes they put it in these terms to have sort of a more yeah. global identity and increase cooperation to tackle some of these issues, climate change related yeah. or otherwise. So what are what explains how cooperation evolves and increases in human societies? Yeah. So this this is you know this is the law of cooperation. So uh, in, in, I'll tell you a little story. So in 2005, Science Magazine you know lays out this challenge. It lays out its its top 25 challenges for the coming quarter century, and one of those challenges is how did cooperation evolve? Now we had been you know figuring this stuff out. We'd been figuring out the mechanisms by which cooperation evolves, right? So we knew some of them already. So we knew that um, genes that can identify and favor copies of themselves will spread at the expense of genes that do not. We call this inclusive fitness or kin selection, right? And you, I don't know if you, have you ever been to like, so these talks annoy me, but when people say, love is a mystery. How could we understand why it is that we love our families, we love our spouse? No, man, love is not a mystery. We understand it at multiple levels really quite well. And one example of this is like kin selection, right? Like we, we understand why animals will favor, a lion will come in and kill the cubs of the other lion, but not its own cubs, right? So that's across the animal kingdom, we understand this. At a higher level, beyond kin, you can have direct reciprocity. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You screw me over, I'll come get you. If you help me, we can mutually help each other. As long as we regularly interact, you're not a con man who comes in, takes what they want, and leaves, right? So it does require we know each other. It does require we repeatedly uh, work with one another. You can go slightly higher with uh, inclusive fitness, sorry, uh, with indirect reciprocity or reputation. So this is, I don't have to know, I don't have to regularly interact with you or know who you are. We just have to be part of the same group and I need to know all of you. Is Ricardo a good guy? Like, you know, is he is he someone that I should collaborate with? Should I work with him? I should ask around. I should look at the reputational information, in this case online, which is vastly, by the way, uh, increase the power of reputation. But reputation is limited in that uh, you have to, it has to be a reliable signal. So reputation used to be very limited until the internet came along. So you and I, you know, we mentioned we're roughly the same age. Uh, when we were kids, your your parents probably said, don't get in a car with a stranger. Don't go to a stranger's house. Yeah. And I do that all the time. I get in a car with a stranger. It's called Uber. I stay in strangers' houses. It's called Airbnb. And the reason I can do that is because I have we have securitized that reputational management to these companies. And insofar as we trust that company, in the same way that if we trust the government, uh, then we can we can we can rely on those reputations. If you start seeing fake restaurant reviews, you'll stop using that review platform. 
So that's up to the reputation. In most of the world, institutions do this for us. I pay my taxes to an inst to a to the government. They have a police force, judiciary, uh, courts, and so on. And as long as I'm paying my taxes and I trust that they will be fair and impartial, I don't have to destroy people's reputations. I don't have to go after thieves myself. I just rely on the government to do it for me. Okay, great. And religion also has been, you know, has been proposed as a mechanism to get us between uh, reputation systems and institutional systems. But I'll leave that aside for now. So that was the state of affairs. And so one of my contributions to the literature is like, hang on a second, guys. You're telling me we have all these mechanisms and they explain how we get to higher levels. But here's the thing. They all exist at the same time, right? Yep. You have inclusive fitness. You have genes. You know, you have family. You have direct reciprocity, indirect reciprocity. You have all of these, these different mechanisms at the same time. And so how do they interact with each other? And they interact with each other in the following way. The lower scales undermine the higher scales because the lower scales are more natural. They are more stable. And they are more, you know, they, they're the ancient forms. They're found across the animal kingdom. So if a if a president gives a contract to his uh, to his son, uh, we call that nepotism. But it's just inclusive fitness, kin selection, undermining our institutions. If a manager gives a job to a friend or a friend of a friend, we call that cronyism. But it's also just direct or indirect reciprocity, undermining the meritocracy. So now we have a whole new problem that I don't think the literature has kind of caught up with. It's not about identifying more mechanisms. It's about which scale, and that's your, that's your question to me, which scale dominates? And the answer is the scale at which the payoff per person, the payoff per individual is highest. So that opens a new question. Well, how, what increases? So when we build these game theoretic games, we deliberately set them up as dilemmas. That is, we set it up so that what is better for me is going to be, uh, is going to have a higher payoff than what is better for us. That's what makes it interesting. But in the real world, we often create positive sum situations where there's a win-win. For example, if there is enough, let's say, oil in the ground, there's enough resources, there's a big marketplace, then I can build a better company. I can write a better paper. I can create a better project by not doing it on my own, but by working with you. Yeah. And the size of the group or for the project, for the company or whatever that I work at is the size at which the per employee or per person reward is higher than it would be if I was in a larger or smaller group. So if I am a high energy physics, I need thousands of people. I would love to do it with 100, but I can't. I can't have a large hadron collider with 100 people. I need thousands. Yeah. If I'm a, you know, a, an economist, maybe I want to keep the group small so I can get win a Nobel Prize, keep it at three. But if I need more than that, I'm gonna have to gonna have to collaborate. Same thing at a societal level. And so one thing in the book is we, there's a clear, there's a metric called uh, energy return on investment, and it has been falling. The, the energy ceiling, the law of energy, it has been falling. So what I call the space of the possible between that efficiency floor and that energy has been has been coming down. And that means we're incentivizing lower scales of cooperation. We're incentivizing class conflict. We're incentivizing interethnic conflict. We're incentivizing the fracturing of societies. And we're making it more difficult for nations to work with one another on common challenges. Yeah, and this is very interesting. We'll come back to how we can go beyond the energy ceiling that we have now to try to tackle issues like, for example, climate change and others. But this is very interesting just also to put into perspective the ideas that some people have, because some people tend to say that uh, you mentioned love there at a certain point, and some people say, oh, we should just 
expand our group identity as if it was just telling <laughs> people that they yeah, should just do tell that. To be nicer. <laughs> but, but that's not actually how yeah. we work. I mean, it, to have a more expanded group identity, there are more material stuff, Correct. actually material yeah. stuff that we have to tackle first. That's right. That's right. It's nice. It's, it's easier to be nice when there's more to go around. Right. I, I use a couple of analogies in the book. So imagine like um, uh, the rate of economic growth, right. As kind of yeah. buses coming along. Right. And the rate of buses, this is the rate of economic growth. So they come in every five minutes and you get to the, you get to the bus stop and uh, somebody pushes in front of you in line. And you're also irritated because, you know, some groups are giving favors to their in-group. Uh, you've got these the 1% with these special bus passes that always get them to the front of the line. But, hey, listen, if the bus is coming every five minutes, you might mumble, you might grumble, but there's another bus coming. You're going to get a seat. You just have to wait. And so we mumble and grumble, but we put up with it. But if the rate of buses slows down, you know, one an hour, one a day, those very same fractures that always existed – they crack they become something more you know mm -hmm. you're driving around a car park and uh somebody like shoves in you know to your space that you were signaling to get to if there's many more you'll be like asshole and then you just move on right but if uh if if there aren't if that's the last space and you've been driving around for 30 minutes you better believe there's gonna be there's gonna be a a, a bigger reaction right mm -hmm. so that's that's the thing like you can't just like it's not a, it's not a psychological thing where you just have to convince people to be nicer to one another. Uh, you know, it's, it's not just it, those things can trap you. So, for example, if you believe that the world is zero sum, that means that someone else's loss is your gain. You can under you will you will be incentivized to undermine one another. And that can create the very circumstances that prevent us discovering those mutuals, uh, uh, those mutual win-wins, creating a positive sum environment, leading to economic growth. I undermine you instead of working harder than you. It's destructive competition rather than productive competition. So those, those, that's psychology. But the reality matters too. So you, you, sometimes you have to help a country or a community escape through, uh, from that trap, that mm -hmm. psychological trap. Um, but only if the reality is such. And what I'm, what I'm saying is that the reality is, is shifting. Um, but there's the good news is there's ways out of this, right? Like we can use that theory of everyone to also, um, for example, invest in, in in energy technologies with a high enough energy return on investment, mm -hmm. uh, and it's not renewables except maybe solar. Yeah. Uh, by the way, just before we go on to talk about other topics related to human societies, because that's the focus here. It's not that the other animals are not interesting. Of course they are, but we're focusing yeah. on humans here. But what would you say from the perspective of a theory of everyone, as you put it in this book, what are the traits that distinguish us the most from other animals or that play the biggest role here in making our societies different from the societies of other even closely related great apes, for example? Yeah, yeah. So the, the answer is that we have a, a massive reliance on software basically on culture so we are we are each of us as a as individual humans is are much cleverer than our lifetime of experience should allow us to be and much cleverer than even our genes allow us to be and that is because we benefit from this accumulated software this knowledge that we acquire we, you, when you're born as a baby you have to spend the next several I don't know, a couple of decades catching up on the last several thousand years of human history. And it is writing this software into your brain that's making you cleverer, right? I'll give you some examples, right? Uh, okay. 
the best, the, the strongest bit of evidence that uh, that human that human reliance on this cultural software is what leads to our do, uh, our dominance is the fact that you have genes that have led to a, a weak jaw and a very short gut, such that you could not re rely on raw foods without some supplements to to get you by or massive amounts of it, right? Yeah. That means you rely on cooked food, but you don't have any instincts for fire making. You nope. live in a world where you I mean fire making is hard, man. Like unless somebody <laughs> oh yeah, and that's the thing with humans, right? I have lots of examples in the book of like, it's hard to figure it out. But once it's figured out, it's it, you learn and you, you get better at teaching it. It's easy to teach it. You know, there's examples with kids. If you show them, they they don't instinctively make hooks, but once you show it to them, any little child can do it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, numeracy is another great example of this. Like for a long time, and many societies today count one, two, three, many. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean humans aren't are incapable of counting. We obviously count all the time, but it means that once upon a time we developed a number system. We used ten. It's an awkward number. Would have been better if it was sixteen, just because it maps back to binary hexadecimal. Um, but we can all count because once upon a time that was invented, and even after numbers were invented, probably to keep track of trade. Yeah. After that, it took a long time to get to zero. Why? Because initially our metaphor that we were mapping into our minds were stones. And stones are great for adding and subtracting, but they don't make obvious zero. Uh, what is zero stones? Well, it's nothing, and it's also nothing of anything else. And when we did, you know, one of the ways that we were able to transmit that, and we still use in our school systems today, is a number line. So instead of stones, we teach numbers as movement and position along a number line. And now zero is obvious, and so are negative numbers. So now it's a it's a brand new skill, the idea of negative numbers, and eventually they're complex numbers. So this gives you new tools for thinking. And that is what the difference between us and other animals are, that we can develop this software. It's not just the fact that our hardware is large. And in fact, our hardware is large because of that software. And it's not just the fact that we have language. We have language because we had something to communicate. Because there's no point in language. Language is a costly thing, especially for us. We've, we have some genetic mutations that make us more susceptible to choking. Um, that means that we were dying to speak to one another. We had something to say. Yeah. And so the, the, you have a startup problem when it comes to language. There's no point in, in being the only person who can speak a language because it's pointless. Like you can't be the only speaker, right? So everyone else has to have that too. So they, they're going to pay a cost, a cognitive cost to have this language, which means they have to have something worth communicating, which is why this culture and accumulated cultural evolution is what really distinguishes us from other animals. And then it leads to everything else. I sorry, I, I you know I keep I keep wanting to tell you more, Ricardo. I'm giving the whole the whole book away. But you know it's what led to um, you know, our, the fact that we give birth to premature babies, babies that are floppy, useless messes for at least 18 months and often 18 years and longer, you know, uh, just <laughs> floppy, useless messes, not ready to tackle the world. It's the reason that we have grandmothers, you know, as kind of professors of the past transmitting knowledge. It's the, it's the reason that we have um, the patriarchy. I'll leave that one for the book. But all of these things, almost every aspect of our society falls out of this basic truth, this theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course, there would be hundreds of different topics we could talk about here today that you explore in the book, but we also can't give the entire book away. Otherwise, you know, people will, Go buy the book. You'll, you'll people will come to this yeah. interview instead of buying the book, which shouldn't be good. So, uh, But there's one thing that very nicely connects with what you just said. There is how much of uh, our own reasoning and cognition is the product of culture? Because, of course, we have, for example, disciplines like 
behavior genetics that work sometimes on things like IQ and trying to understand uh, where individual differences in IQ come from and some of them seem to be uh, genetically based but at the same time I mean when it comes to the actual thinking tools that we use to reasoning thinking and solve problems how much of it comes from culture and from the perspective of a theory of everyone how would you tackle something like human intelligence and yeah. IQ yeah so so my position is that it's not that you know, these IQ tests, for example, are culturally biased. It's that it makes no sense to talk about culture-free intelligence itself. Like, there's no such thing as culture-free intelligence. And it's very difficult for us to see this and understand this because IQ tests and, in fact, all of experimental psychology was developed after the introduction of formal education. So there's one particular thing in our society that is transmitting a cultural package to every generation that changes the way that they think. Sometimes it teaches shapes, numbers, you know, uh, phonemes, writing, reading, and all of these things. And these things become like instincts to us. And people who have lived around other educated people uh, assume that these things are human universals. But the mm -hmm. data is tricking you. Take, for example, you know, the Stroop test where you have like different uh, – uh, words written in different colors, and you're supposed to say the color and not the the word. It's really difficult, right? Oh, now, yes. if you if you didn't know the history of literacy, like you were a you know a psychologist from Venus, and you came down and you're studying these humans, um, and you and you run this, you're like, oh, humans clearly have a an instinct for reading, and it it surpasses any kind of color recognition that they have, which of course is nonsense, right? Yeah. Um, so when you when we when you go the only way to see this is to try to find uh, either look at the past so you can look at the history of literacy look at the history of numeracy or you go to places where there's like natural experiments going on um, where education isn't correlated with poverty or uh, illness or war or any of these other things that might be leading to any deficits or any differences that you're that you're discovering in the data so we we I present some of the data that we have from Namibia and Angola. So at the border between Namibia and Angola, there's a natural experiment happening. There's a there's a group of uh, semi-nomadic pastoralist people, the Himba. Uh, they live on both sides of the river, one in Namibia, one uh, sorry, one in Angola, one in Namibia. Um, only the Namibian Himba are receiving education, and there we can see like we use something like the the Ravens colored progressive matrices, which are a um, uh, it's, it's considered to be the most culture-free intelligence test, but of course it's not, right? Like you have to teach kids these shapes and things like that. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is when you look at that, kids who have – so IQ goes up with age, and we assume that that's because kids get cleverer as they get older. And of course they do, but they're also mm -hmm. getting something else as they get older, dosage of education. They're, they're spending longer in school. So what we find is that when you don't have access to school on the Ravens colored progressive matrices, the results are flat. So the seven-year-old is performing just like the 18-year-old. We have other tests that you can detect some of the changes that are taking place. And what we find is that if you have access to more schooling, you get a moderate line. And the more you have, the more the line looks like what you find in the West. So it's, it's pretty clear that a lot of our ways of thinking about the world, even things like logical reasoning. So another test is if P then Q reasoning. So we ask people um, – so this is building on work by Alexander Luria. So he asked me, I'll tell you his version, then I'll tell you some of our our version. So he asked okay. people in um, uh, in uh, in Uzbekistan, he said, um, 
I'm going to ask you a question. Where it snows, the bears are white. In Novaya Zemlya, the, the, it snows. What color are the bears? Now, if I ask my, my, my six-year-old, uh, she'll say white. Uh, if I ask any adult, any, any, any child, anyone in our society, they'll say white. Uh, the Uzbek said, I don't know, brown? I've seen a brown bear? Uh, I'm not sure. Right? We did the same thing in Namibia and Angola, and you can see the clear difference between like the way in which education is training you to think, the way it's delaying your gratification. So uh, when you ask uh, people, you know, I, I have a boat made in this, uh, in this other place. Um, sorry, in this other place, boats are made out of sand. I have a boat from this other place. What is it made out of? They're like, wood? <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know, wood? You know, and so when he's like, could it be made out of sand? Then they just laugh. These kind of hypothetical ways of reasoning in abstract categories, it's, it's delivered to us by our education system. Mm-hmm. Now, when you do like GWASs or, you know, so I have, a, I, have a, I have a paper on this on the cultural evolution of genetic heritability. I think you, you spoke to my co-author. Ryutaro Uchiyama. Ryutaro Uchiyama, yeah, he was my former student. You know, there, you know, we lay this out, we lay out a formalism so you can see what's going on here. You're correlating with things that exist in our society. Now, I just want to be very clear here. Now, I'm not saying the genes aren't important. In fact, if we were to equalize everything else in a society, same access to resources, same home environment, same parenting, same um, uh, same school environment, same, uh, you know, your mother's not smoking or not getting pollution or lead in the water, and all of that is the same, heritability would be 100% because mm-hmm. genes are the only thing left to do any work. So heritability should really be thought of as a measure uh, or an indicator of equality, you know, the equality of these outcomes. They don't really tell you. And the thing is, we don't live in that world. We live in a deeply unequal world. And we, li- we live in a world where there's structured inequality, where different groups, different cultural clusters have very different. So you can't get away from that by through any kind of statistics. There's no GWAS or a twin study that can get you away from that reality. Um, because even when you have a twin study, you're putting people in roughly similar environments with, you know, uh, with similar interactions. And so, I mean, this is probably going to be the most uh, sensitive question I will ask to them, probably also the most controversial. I, I took the gloves off in this book. I, I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. Yeah. yeah, I understood that. And also the most controversial, uh, tiny aspect of your book, let's say. But what do you make of the literature on sex differences and group differences in intelligence? Yeah, so for the you know I, I wrote about it in in the cultural evolution of genetic heritability on the on the group differences. Um, I have yet to see. So here's 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 my position in the book. I don't think that there should be a taboo around this topic. I think it's essential that we tackle this question with openness and honesty. I give some reasons for you know the, the fact that we're a migratory species, what it means for us to be clinal, um, why we can detect where people are from different parts of the world. You know, I, I deal with this like head on and I, you know, I'd rather people read the full, full throated version of that argument. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I, given how much we know is in the cultural software, it seems exceedingly unlikely to me that any of these differences that we're seeing are not cultural differences when it comes to these populations for, for a variety of reasons that I explained. Yeah, so it's, it, what I was saying is that it's exceedingly unlikely that these differences are, are genetic. It's, you know, I would love to see uh, a, a well-designed study. I would love to see like a, a, a good test of this coming from the perspective. See, the thing is like the people work – one of the things that we did with that BBS paper was to say, you guys aren't even thinking about the way the culture evolves. It's not even in your vocabulary. You're, you're missing half the equation. You're missing more than half the equation. 
you're you're chasing things and you you don't you don't you don't have a theory of human behavior this is this is these are giant correlations you know these are mm -hmm. uh they don't tell you what you think they tell you so that's that side of things you know uh, and readers can judge for themselves uh in the book uh, on the on the on the group on the sorry on the sex differences uh in intelligence uh what i argue is Again, this is a this is a bit of more full-throated argument. Uh, at the mean, doesn't seem like there's there's any differences. Mm -hmm. There's pros and cons. The best argument for it is to do with head size and brain size. Um, but as it turns out, you know, there's there's factors moving in different directions uh, in 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 the structures of male on average male and female brains, and so it doesn't look like there's a mean difference. Um, there is somewhat of a case to be made for a there being a variance difference between males and females such that there may be overrepresentation of males and females on on both ends of the spectrum so the poor spade job the high spade jobs or anything that you might think correlates with iq again it's tricky and it's going to interact with the size of the population and the amount of selection so if you take something like um take sports ability for example where it's pretty clear that there is both a mean difference and probably a variance difference um Normal distributions are exponential functions, and people have, have very poor intuitions for that. So insofar as a normal distribution describes any kind of ability, including sports ability, we should see very small we should see much smaller differences closer to the middle of that compared to at the, at the tails. And the bigger the population, the more selection, the bigger the difference is going to be at the tails. And you should see that in the in the in the in the um, the sports records as well, by the way. So you should see that a high school sports star, male and female, there's going to be a gap for sure. But go look at the Olympics, and that gap should be larger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, same thing here. Now, does that mean that this isn't you know this isn't something that is also affected by policies? Of course it is. Are there not interactions? Of course there are. Uh, and again, to see the more full-throated throated version of that argument, I encourage people to read the book. And of course, people definitely have to read it because it's much more fleshed out there. Yeah, and it's yeah. a very interesting argument. Right, sure. right. I mean, it's 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 in, in dealing with any of these kinds of topics. I one of the things I say in the book is like scientists have to speak freely, or you you can't trust science. If it feels like we're holding back and we're giving the answers that match, or you like take take my position on on intelligence, right? If I'm the only voice that's acceptable in a room. The answer is that you know it's software or something like that. Then you shouldn't believe me, actually, because you don't know what the counterfactual is. Yeah. Uh, we we can only trust the truth, and we can only trust scientists if we if we know that scientists are speaking freely. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that might be something that we might come back to also because when it comes, I would imagine, to creativity and innovativeness, it's very much important to have different uh, people from different cultural backgrounds, political backgrounds, and so on, yeah, to really absolutely. be able to drive innovation. So, so that's a big part of the book, like the importance yeah. of diversity for, for multiple reasons. Like you need those diverse perspectives looking at this problem yeah. because we don't see our own biases. We don't see, you know, we, science works not because we are enlightened geniuses who look at the evidence and then, you know, take go where it takes us. That's That's the ideal scientist, but very few people are ideal scientists. They're just ordinary humans. And ordinary humans, science works because we are ordinary humans who are incentivized and allowed to criticize one another. And we agree on what the standards of evidence are. And we agree on, on, on you know, what, what a theory looks like. Yeah. And as a result, we're incentivized to show you that you're wrong. And that process leads to a collective uh, – you collectively arrive at the truth through that yeah. scientific process. The scientific process isn't the experiments, it's this process of, of trying to show each other that we're wrong.
But it's very interesting that you, was, you use the word collectively there because I was just about to ask you about the idea of the collective brain. Because, of yeah. course, particularly in the West, I'm not, sure, I'm not so much sure about other cultures, but we tend to have this idea that it's individual geniuses that have the big ideas, that are innovators, that push society forward and so on, that are creative. That's but right, yeah. is that really the best perspective here? Is it really the case that, yeah. for example, someone like Newton, Einstein, Darwin and others are the ones really making responsible for all the innovations in our society? There is a tiny minority, yeah. minority so, of people. So we have a psychology part of that kind of social learning psychology that leads to cultural level. So for any evolutionary system, you need three ingredients, diversity, transmission, and selection. Yeah. Um, on the selection, we are very good at selecting models from whom to learn. And so we have a psychology mm -hmm. that leads us to look at who the successful people are. And I think it leads us even to the past to look for those successful ancestors in the Western world, mm -hmm. these great inventors, you know, in other parts, maybe the, the someone who gave you fire and, and whatever. Um, but that, that psychology is mistaken. It doesn't show you the kind of landscape that led to that person with that specific combination. Yeah. And there's, there's, multiple, there's multiple reasons to believe this, right? Um, the first, okay, who invented the light bulb? Do you know? Do you know, Ricardo? Uh, I, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I was hesitating. I was hesitating. I don't want to put you on the spot. No, you know. no, I was hesitating because uh, I'm familiar with the answer that people tend to give, but I know that the story is much more complicated yeah. than, well, than the just saying Edison. So. Edison, right? So pe most people say Edison invented the incandescent light bulb. Okay, so here's the thing. Edison invented the incandescent light bulb, and so did Joseph Swan in England. And once upon a time, British people would have swore up and down it was Swan who, who got there first. In fact, they had an argument over who got there first. And so they created the uh, the Eddie Swan Light Company so that they wouldn't have that battle, and they co-sold uh, the product there. But here's the other thing, right? At the t Edison and Swan were not alone in this simultaneous discovery. At the time, everybody was trying to figure out how to get these incandescent, you know, practical light bulbs working. There were 22 other patents at the time, so there were at least 22 other successful attempts, and there was a whole landscape of people trying to do this. To do this, right? And these guys represented the first commercial success, not necessarily the first invention of it. Yeah. Right. So, he, I mean, you know, Edison kind of said it, right? Well, he, he is attributed to have said it, that itself was stolen from somewhere else, probably Kate Sanborn, uh, that it was 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration, just iterating and iterating and, and, and trying to work this out. So the light bulb, I like it because the light bulb is often used as a symbol for an idea, Boop, you know, the light bulb over your head. And whenever you see that, you should go think of all of the other light bulbs that you're not seeing that led to this evolutionary landscape of failed paths. And these are the only successes you have left. So if you look at someone like Newton, right? Newton, in this case, he, you know, he's fighting with Leibniz over who got to calculus first. Two things to be said. First off, how light, how crazy is it that we have history? We have a long history of no calculus, and then in this moment in history, we have two people coming up with calculus at the same time. These guys are are they're reading the same literature, they're in the same place, and these ideas are recombining in their heads. Right? They are the nexus in our social network where these ideas come together. And it's like, oh, as scientists, as entrepreneurs, uh, we are all somehow convinced of our own genius, but also terribly afraid that we're going to get scooped. 
You know, because at some level we recognize that we're all in this milieu of ideas recombining, and that's what's really driving it. And by the way, you know, someone like Newton, at a time when literacy rates were so low, let me let me say something else. So in the book, I talk about the fact that some people ask, like, where have all the geniuses gone? You know, where are the Newtons and Einsteins of our time? Where, how come that there are no geniuses left? Newton for sure, and Einstein probably too, at a time when so few had enough education and access to opportunities, it is incredibly unlikely that Sir Isaac Newton happened to be the brightest guy in Britain. Or to let me, let me say it another way, thanks to the Flynn effect and rising education and all of these opportunities in the modern world, if you take the average big tech engineer, uh, finance quant star, uh, you know, physics professor, whatever, if you take that, the average bright person and you put them in Newton's position, they would probably re-derive Newton's laws and do much, much more, reinvent calculus and much, much more. In other words, Newton was the top of a small molehill at a time when very few had the opportunity. It's, it's not that Newton wasn't a bright guy, it's that it's unlikely that he had the most potential in all of England. Einstein too, right? It's unlikely that Einstein happened to be at this place. You know, he's in Bern, he's thinking about clocks. He's, he's sitting in his patent office working through patents about electrical devices for the synchronization of time. You know, these ideas are all percolating, uh, percolating in his head. So, you know, a big part of the book, you know, when it comes to the policy stuff is that, you know how people say um, talent is equally distributed, uh, but opportunity is not? Mm-hmm. Right. Not strictly true. Talent isn't perfectly equally distributed. But what is definitely true is that talent is more equally distributed than opportunity is. Opportunity is incredibly unequally distributed. And that means we're leaving money on the table. We're leaving this incredible creativity, this creative explosion, this innovative potential on the table by not creating a fairer world in which the best and brightest of each generation can take us to the next place humanity needs to go. And so I lay out you know, what kind of tax policies and the taxing on productive money and things like that, land value taxes and so on that could help get us there. And so another very important thing that you tackle in the book or talk about is institutions and cultural norms, because uh, I guess that is also particularly important because we in the West and people in other societies tend to think that our norms are always the superior ones and also when it comes uh, to uh, making them work in other places, we tend to think that they will work everywhere, but that's actually not true, right? And that's something that we have to keep in mind. Yeah, so I mean, um, as I describe it, you know, um, institutions rest on invisible cultural pillars, right? Uh, it, It doesn't matter what the constitution says if you don't have a norm that says we are ruled by principles and not people, by law, by laws and not lords, right? If you don't have that, then it doesn't matter because the constitution just gets changed or ignored. The, the power of something like a constitution or a legal code is comes about when anyone who violates it faces consequences for doing so. Otherwise, we lead to slippage and a different kind of environment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is an important point. I could give you an entire thing uh, about this. But the other aspect of it is that many of the institutions that might have so take something like a lot of for most of history, a lot of companies, corporations were family based, kin based, right? And the, the kind of this Western institution of uh, companies that can hire anybody, where you can just bring your talent to to any uh, to any place that that can run counter to to countries where nepotism and cronyism uh, are rife, um, where 
it is expected at every level to help your family, you know, including in helping them find a job and, and, and that it's it's a self-sustaining suboptimal equilibrium. It's a worse situation that because governments can't provision because they're corrupt and they're corrupt because people are engaging in these kinds of behaviors. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, if you take if you take take Liberia, for example, like it has the institutions of the United States, but it's not successful. Take Papua New Guinea, where I used to live. It has British parliamentary style institutions, basically exactly the same as Australia, but it's far less successful. The norms matter. The the level of cooperation matters. Now, that also means that there can be new recombinations of norms that are more successful or, or just as successful. Take South Korea. South Korea has Western-style institutions and a more collectivist culture, and yet is incredibly economically successful. They have found a new recombination to make yep. that work, right? Um, so that's all I'm saying. So a lot of foreign policy is a, uh, is a failure to appreciate some of these cultural norms and, and see the world through vastly different eyes and very different computation, very different software. It's an incompatibility between, you know, trying to use Keynote on a, on a, on a Windows computer, you know? Yeah. And somewhat related to that, and since, uh, I mean, talking about the theory of everyone, of course, I guess that we are also taking a historical perspective here and trying to understand how society, human societies evolve through time and how they change. What is the role or how do you look at the role played by ideas? Because there are some people that tend to put a lot of weight on yeah. ideas. Like f just to give an example, many people talk about the enlightenment values as being one of the main forces behind Western progress and yeah. success. But what do you think are really is really the role played by ideas here? Yeah, so ideas are the fodder for cultural evolution in the same way that genes are the fodder for genetic evolution. Ideas are being selected. And what we need to know, like it's not just the mutation that is a new idea, but ex right. about how it is being selected. So I, I just pulled up the book. You know, I have this example from, from Kant, right? Uh, so Kant gives us laudable ideas like, Freedom is the alone, unoriginated birthright of man and belongs to him by force of his humanity. Okay? But Kant also gives us deplorable ideas like humanity is at its greatest perfection in the race of the whites. So you can't say that, you know, enlightenment values are, are what lead to it when you have this kind of range of values. And it's tautological to say, well, you know, we are intelligent enough to figure out what the what the right ones are. But no, we, we it's not clear. If it were clear, we'd have figured it out earlier. Instead, there's this process of these ideas have effects on the world. And some of those ideas work better. They lead to more harmonious society. So the idea of monogamy, for example, solve the problem of young unmarried males who can't find a wife, incredibly destabilizing for society. It solved that problem, and so it stuck around. And now we, you know, we 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 moralize it. We treat it as this is the right way. That is, Jacob Zuma, you know, president of South Africa, is like, no, that's a Western idea. I got four wives. The problem is when you have too many Jacob Zumas, you suck up, you know, the pool of of, of women, and you leave all of these unmarried women, right? Uh, unmarried men, sorry. And young men commit most of the crimes in society. Young unmarried men who, you know, young men who can't get married, they're the worst for society. Um, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. You know, the lady doth protest too much. Like if it were that, if it was self-evident, you wouldn't have had to say it that it was self-evident, right? <laughs> you only hold these truths to be self-evident. Uh, 
Because in a world where we look around and, you know, so we can say, okay, equality before the law, equality before God, you know, this that kind of equality. And we can hold those, but they're not self-evident. They're not obvious. And yet they lead to a better world. They lead yeah. to us treating one another not based on the happenstance of our birth, but and not, you know, like your height or attractiveness or your wealth or whatever. But there is there is a fundamental equality between us. So these are ideas, but they're not self-evident. They're not obvious and they don't do the work by themselves. Ideas that lead to better outcomes at whatever level stick around and ideas that don't eventually die away. Eugenics, right? Eugenics was a very popular idea pushed by many of the progressives at the time until the Nazis right. you know, showed where that led. And now it's a taboo topic, you know, making a bit of a comeback. Uh, Adam Rutherford has a nice book on this control. Mm -hmm. No, no that, that's total, totally true. But yeah. uh, so before we get into some of the issues that we are dealing with, uh, today and that we have to try to solve and perhaps some of the potential solutions. There's one more thing that you also talk about in the book that I think is very important to cover here that has to do with the fact that uh, nowadays uh, in many of our societies we live in a multicultural context. We have to deal with people from yeah. uh, <laughs> right. a plenitude of, uh, from different cultural backgrounds. Yeah. And uh, that's a positive thing, but it's also a challenge for our societies. Yeah. And so what are some of the strategies that people employ across different countries? And I mean, is it that one of them works better than the others or in different contexts, perhaps uh, uh, different strategies would work better? Yeah, so each of these strategies is trying to solve what I call the paradox of diversity. And that is the, the you know the elephant in the room is that diversity is a double-edged sword. Diversity is the fuel for innovation. It leads to more vibrant societies. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew has this great quote. I'm going to actually find it for you because it, it is a wonderful quote. Um, he says, China could draw on a talent pool of 1.3 billion people, but the United States could draw on the world's 7 billion people and recombine them in a diverse culture that exudes creativity in a way that ethnic Han nationalism cannot, right? The vibrancy of the United, like immigrants are America's super serum because they've found a way, you know, under plentiful resources to make that work for the most part. Yeah. Um, Every country is trying to solve this paradox, and, you, and every company is doing this too. You've got to grab the bull by both its horns, otherwise you end up just hiring people more like yourself or something like that. And different countries have different strategies. So um, uh, Gerard Aura, if I'm saying it right, um, you know, the, the French ambassador to the United States, got into this argument with Trevor Noah. Uh, ambassadors don't normally get into arguments with, uh, with comedians, but, um, you know, like, let, me, let me see if I can find this quote as well. Um, so, so Noah's, you know, so he's, it's an, uh, if you don't know, Trevor Noah was the host of The, the Daily Show. Uh, yeah. And he joked after, you know, after France won the World Cup that Africa had won the, uh, won the World Cup. And he says, look at those guys, right? You don't get that tan by hanging out in the south of France. And Gerard, he gets, he gets super angry about it. And he says, France is indeed a cosmopolitan country, but every citizen is part of the French identity. And together they belong to the nation of France. Unlike in the United States of America, France does not refer to its citizens based on their race, religion, or origin. To us, there is no hyphenated identity. Roots are an individual reality. So he, he argued that, that what Trevor Noah was inadvertently doing was feeding into this ideology that claims that you know, the only definition of France, French, uh, to being French is whiteness. So France is trying to practice what we call one model of multiculturalism that we might call the no hyphen model. 
whatever you might be, whatever religion, whatever um, you know your your ethnicity, whatever your background, that's your your business. You're French. You're French. That's it. That's where we stop. We we're blind to all of these things. Now it's a nice ideal, uh, but in practice, right? You do have enclaves. France has a colonial, uh, a brutal colonial history, and it's made it difficult. For example, some many North Africans have contributed vastly to French society, but also there's there are many problems. It's rife discrimination. It is not the case that no matter the color of your skin or the the the, the creed that you profess, that you're French. Um, so it's not dealing with the reality. Now, if you had people coming in in small numbers and they were very willing to join French society, and maybe then and and people, you know, engaging the same social groups, that might work. It, it is a solution, but it's difficult in practice. Then you have kind of the Canadian model, which is, uh, you know, what we call might call the salad bowl or the mosaic model. Uh, communities living side by side, right? Like we, you're not trying to integrate. Maybe we have some values, but not worrying about it. You, we live side by side in a beautiful mosaic. Um, and I think so far Canada seems to have made that work, but and, and it has a history. Like the reason it has this is because Quebec uh, or the French-speaking colonies had to make it make it work with the English-speaking colonies, and the solution was let's do the let's do let's do multiple languages, let's do the do the mosaic. And now as more people come in, the mosaic has grown. But here's the thing: mosaics are more fragile than a single pane of glass when put under pressure. So the question is, can Canada? Under times of economic recession or the the shrinking space of the possible as 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 excess energy uh, decreases, can it will those fractures potentially cause the country to come apart? My guess is it will actually, um, unless there's there's greater integration. Uh, America practices you know what they call the melting pot, right? Like everybody comes in, you mix it all together, and you get this this beautiful stew. Maybe there's little parts. Um, but everybody is ultimately American, and I think for the most part, America does a, a really good job at this. Um, but you know, there's I, I have this this quote from um, uh, from from Terry Pratchett, you know, of Discworld, uh, where he says, um, "Where is it? Uh, uh, you know, America could become Unc Morpork, right? Uh, the melting pot of the world, which occasionally runs foul of lumps that don't melt." So you have you know some groups that that may not form into that and as well as that you have some more dominant cultures that become the dominant flavor if you like of america and this can lead to it especially again under conditions of resource stress so what i argue is that all of these pieces are missing that resource stress aspect of it and so i propose what i call the umbrella model and i argue that uh, australia comes the closest to this umbrella model although it has plenty of problems as well in a, in a, in a tarred history and and present day issues with um how how uh, Australian Aboriginals are, are treated, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but the idea of the umbrella model is that we have to recognize that when you have greater numbers of people coming in, you also need more investment in infrastructure. Because when people find it more difficult to get into the best schools and get access to hospitals and, and newcomers are given favors, they're going to get upset. And so you need to match that so that, that you, you reduce that buses slowing down or, you know, the car park is full idea. You reduce that probability of a zero-sum environment. If you don't invest in infrastructure, it's, it's a recipe for disaster. So you want to make sure that the umbrella that we all hold is large enough to cover us all from the rain. Because if it's not, people will fight over the control of the, over the umbrella and then we're all standing wet in the rain. Or another way to think about it is like an umbrella corporation. We're trying to hire people. And you want to hire people at a rate where they there are jobs for people, and th there's a clear onboarding and a pathway. And, and current employees recognize that they're they're part of this process of onboarding, um, and that's how you build a great company culture. 
that's how you, you know, and you can, there are the details, you can work it out. Like maybe there's autonomy in the new groups. Maybe there's, you know, there's a centralized authority. Maybe that's a more monolithic, monocle, whatever. There's different ways to organize that. But the key thing is that there's enough for everybody. And so how does Australia do this? Although, you know, when you get to the border, you know, there's horrendous wait times uh, in offshore processing to disincentivize people coming in in boats, for example. Once you get there, massive amounts of resources provided to help integrate newcomers. And in fact, before they arrive, Australia has what it has, what's called the Australian uh, Cultural Orientation Program, a five-day program on what it means to be an Aussie. You know, how do you deal with banking, healthcare, how to make friends with people, what are acceptable norms, what are non-negotiable norms, um, what what help can you uh, expect to receive and what, what are you going to do on your own before you even arrive. Um, so there's all of these things that, that, that Australia does to, to, to integrate people um, and, it, and it, you know, they have the highest household wealth in the world. So that certainly helps as well. Um, yeah, yeah, I can say... I'll leave it there. Yeah, and uh, I mean, one of the questions I asked you, and just to try to understand better how we should think about these different models, strategies to deal with multiculturalism. So at least for the first three ones, the no hyphen model, the mosaic model and the melting pot model, you mentioned some issues that people have in those specific countries yeah. like France, Canada and the US. But for... by the way, these are stylized models. Every country oh. has a piece of each of these, by the way. But anyway. Oh, 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 okay, okay. But when it comes to the umbrella model, do you think then that it would work uh, everywhere, potentially? Yes, that is what I'm saying. So, and that's okay. and that's only because I'm not specifying the details under the umbrella. Okay. I'm just saying that, like, in order for people, it's like I said, it's nicer, it's easier to be nice when there's more to go around. Yeah. Right. Um, it's easy to to invest in conservation when you're wealthy. The, the nice, the clean, the cleanest places are the wealthiest places. Um, you have to have this recognition that resources per person, energy per person, infrastructure matter a heck of a lot. And so, if you're not investing in that, uh, and you're not engaging in some kind of sustainably managed, you know, selective migration policy, then you're opening yourself up to very difficult challenges. And you know, I go through what happened in Europe, for example. You know, from uh, uh, we're chef and das, you know, we can do it to we've underestimated the scale of this challenge. Um, and that's going to have effects for Europe for, for decades to come. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a big part of that is simply not recognizing what that challenge entails, because if you solve it, it leads to a vibrant, innovative culture that is richer than it would have been if you had just kind of, you know, not solved mm -hmm. it. And when a million people are at your door, it's economic framing is the wrong one it, it it's a humanitarian crisis but you still have to solve the you have to solve the paradox of diversity and the book goes through how to do that and i guess uh, i mean just one more follow-up question before we move on to the energy ceiling and the issues so yeah. i guess that uh, most of these stems from something that we talked about earlier in our conversation that is different cultural norms, people coming from That's right, places yeah. with different cultural norms and trying to either integrate or to interact with one another in ways that That's are right. productive. That's right. That's, That's right. right. That's exactly right. And, and so, you know, like, oh, again, this is one of those topics that it, it needs a full-throated argument. And so people should really read the book. Mm -hmm. But in, humans are a migratory species. We have migrated from, from, from the moment we evolved. Uh, what is different today is the age of mass migration. So we have people living alongside each other who have cultural software evolved in very different parts of the world that 
assimilate or don't assimilate or you know they're, they're navigating this in different groups so are they are they staying with their in group do they practice endogamy and only marry among their own do they marry more broadly are they well like there's all kinds of questions and the way to think about this is like when you when your immigration policy is sampling from other countries so First off, it's nonsense to talk about immigrants as a category. There's lots of books talking about what immigrants do and don't do. Immigrant is not a useful category. It's like saying, are citizens well-adjusted? Do they contribute to the economy? Like, that's obviously nonsense, right? It's the same thing to say, do immigrants contribute to the economy? Do they? No, you have to look at the specifics of what time did they come in? What numbers? What was their training? How much was their education? Uh, you know, when did they come? What was the receiving group like? Were they welcomed? Uh, what resources were they provided? Where did they live? There's all of these factors that are going to affect the immigrant experience and immigrant outcomes. And what a country wants to do is to create a situation that is good for the country and good for the immigrant. And I think of it almost like hiring for positions that you need. So again, Australia's points-based system where they uh, look to see what the industries are really required and ensure that English language is a, is a, is a requirement. That helps ensure people can integrate and, and assistance with integrating and plentiful resources mean that people have jobs and they can do well. Whereas if they come and try to figure it out, maybe, maybe it doesn't work out quite so well. But in any case, what you're doing is sampling from these distributions. So it is not – most people in any country do not commit crimes. And as a result, mm -hmm. most immigrants don't commit crimes. Most people from any country are not you know, absolute geniuses and top performers. As a result, most immigrants from any particular country are not. But if you have a selective policy that takes the best and brightest – or you have, then you're going to have more people who are highly educated. The story of like, you know, Asians in America, for example. Mm -hmm. um, or uh, if you if you um, if you sample at random, where you just have like people coming in, then you're getting a full distribution. Yeah. And we have ways of measuring this. So, but yeah. again, re read the book. Read the book. There's a lot to this, and it all what. It, it may sound chaotic and confusing, but it's not. As you alluded to, everything connects to everything else once you have this theory of everyone. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what is our current energy ceiling? I mean, what is really the situation yeah. we are in now? Okay. So if you look at graphs of any indication of human progress, right? Um Child mortality, uh, overall wealth, uh, lifespan, health, uh, you know, size of polities, size of groups, whatever. It looks flat right up until the Industrial Revolution, and then it rockets off. As Ian Morris puts it, it you know, the Industrial Revolution made a mockery of everything that came before. So all of that stuff you learned about in school, the Black Death, the Roman Empire, Scientific Revolution, Renaissance, mockery, nothing. You know, it's a blip on the charts. You get little blips going up and down. What happened? As I said, we discovered a bunch of stored sunlight. You know, peat turned to black rock, what we call coal, right? Um, algae and, and other organisms turned to oil and natural gas, right? Yeah. And we burned through that. We've been burning through that rapidly. And so there's a key metric developed by, uh, by this uh, energy scientist, Charles Hall, uh, popularized and also worked on by Vaclav Schmil, who's um, uh, Bill Gates calls him his favorite author. Um, which is referred to as the energy return on investment. So this is the amount of energy it takes to get some amount of energy back. And what you want in a society is a very tiny energy sector because you're getting so much out of it that it, it pays for what is required to have food and holidays and heating in your homes. And you know it doesn't matter how fancy your, your gadgets are unless you can charge them. So all of that stuff is paid for by, by this energy sector. 
But the thing is that that number, that energy return on investment, has been falling precipitously. So we have burned through that in a couple of centuries. Those millions of years worth of charged batteries, we've been burning through them in a couple of centuries. So I'll give you one stat. They all look like this. Take, take oil discovery. Mm -hmm. In 1919, one barrel of oil found you another 1,000 barrels. By 1950, one barrel found you another 100 barrels. By 2010, one barrel found you another five. Now, we were rescued in part by the fracking revolution. We found a way to get you know, a reasonable amount of energy at, at not too much cost. But we're running the energy return on investment, the excess energy, the amount of energy it takes to, to get some amount of energy back is decreasing. And so that sector of the society, everything else that's not the energy sector is, is shrinking. The energy per person is shrinking. Now, every, in, in a whole of economics you know, and all of these things were developed and much of our the engineering we use today was developed after the industrial revolution. So we focused on efficiency. How do we do more with less? And we have done an amazing job of that. But there's a fundamental limit to that to that efficiency, right? Like at the end of the day, a certain number of joules are required to heat a home. That's just that's what's required. Yeah. And so th we need to look up. We need to look at that ceiling. And go, oh shit! We need to like raise that ceiling once more because that's what happens in a society is you go through periods of of abundance and scarcity with each of these energy technologies. So the first one was probably uh, you know fire. Obviously, we use. Uh, chemical energy in, in the excess energy of, of wood. We burn that to cook our food, so we pre-digest it, and then that allowed us to build our big brains, allowed us to shrink our guts. Uh, it, it saved us from chewing like a gorilla. Next major energy revolution, a solar technology, agriculture. So rather than expending energy to go out to go get the animals, you can leave it, you plant it in the ground, and we got better at it. And that creates abundance. Our populations grew rapidly. We displaced all of the hunter-gatherer groups who now live at the margins. They still do, where agriculturalists weren't planting crops in deserts, in, in thick rainforests and so on. Right? And they're continuing to be displaced, by the way. Yeah. Um, the, after that, the next major revolution was the Industrial Revolution. And that excess energy was, was, was unbelievable. Like when we learned to use fossil fuels, it was unbelievable. Half the population on Earth today, at least 4 billion people, and probably more, are thanks to the Haber-Bosch process, right? We literally take nitrogen from the air and, uh, and, and synthesize ammonia with natural gas, right, to create the fertilizers needed to keep half our population alive. We're eating our fossil fuels. We need all that. That is running out. So you need that next level. You need that energy ceiling. So then we then, – so I do a survey of, of the technologies that are out there. The EROI on things like wind and solar are quite low, right, which means you're not getting a massive return. It's like in the single digits for, for, for solar, and wind is highly erratic. The only real technology – so solar might get us there eventually because literally there's a fusion reactor in the sky, and if we can harness that, it just it takes a lot of space. It takes a lot of resources to get off the ground, but in the long run, we can get there. So my, you know, I tell, you know, so my mother, for example, she has uh, solar panels on her roof. Uh, she had to pay an upfront cost of that subsidized, and eventually that gets paid off. And then now she, you know, she makes a little bit of money because she's returning. Uh, but she lives in Queensland, Australia. Three hundred days of bright sunshine every year, and it still took her years to pay that off. When we invest in, in renewable technologies, we are paying an upfront cost that eventually pays itself. But in the meantime, inflation goes up. The amount of energy that we need for farming and hospitals and holidays is shrinking as we pay that upfront cost. The only real technology uh, at the moment that's accessible to us with high enough um, energy, 
I, I should I should I keep wanting to get into the details, but I should also mention the one um, green technology that is fantastic is hydro. There's no reason if you have fast flowing rivers, double digits, you know, even triple digits for for hydro. Um, but you have to be lucky. You have to be like Canada. You have these big, you know, like in Canada, electricity is literally called hydro because they produce so much of it thanks to their big rivers. Um, but the only technology apart from that is nuclear. And we, you know, we have a, a hangover from the hippies, if you like, you know, we have a, a stillborn era that the nuclear age is stillborn. And if we'd invested back then, I think we'd be in a much better place today. And a lot of the fears that people have are, are, are solved problems. You know, it's, it's a bit like if you judged the safety of cars and airplanes from the 1950s, you wouldn't fly and you wouldn't drive. But we've developed new car, new tar there's very few planes that go down today. Mm -hmm. And cars are far safer than they ever have been and continue to become safer. Same with nuclear technology. Um, I go through each of these things. So so new, mm -hmm. I, the way I see it, nuclear fission is our short-term uh, savior mm -hmm. um, with supplemented by solar where possible in countries with plenty of sunshine. Um, and nuclear fusion, if we crack it, you know, the fusion reactor in the sky, solar or whatever, and, and nuclear fusion controlled is, is our ultimate, ultimate savior. So, I mean, if we quack fusion using, you know, the most abundant uh, uh, element in the universe, like 98% hydrogen, right, um, that would, we would, because energy is what drives cooperation, innovation, and so on, we would look as primitive as the Middle Ages does to us and far more. It would be, we would be the first generation of a galactic civilization. And because of these numbers is why, you know, I agree with people and I say as well that this may be the most important century in human history. This is the century to get this right. And if we don't, we end up, we end up as a failed species on a planet fighting over what's left without the sufficient energy to make that leap to the next level. Mm -hmm. but, but as I said, I think we can be hopeful. There are reasons that we can get out of this. Yeah, so related to that, I have two more questions and then I yeah. have a third one just about about the book in general. So about the energy ceiling, of course, since we're talking here about the theory of everyone and human behavior, generally speaking, people should be interested in this, I guess. So what are the main problems, sociologically speaking, that derive from we being in this energy so, you know, remember I told you earlier about the problem of cooperation, this law of cooperation, the, the energy per person, the resources per person is what determines the scale, the size of the group that is optimal and evolution is working that out, right? So sometimes it pays to just work with friends and family. When, when, when the economy is tough, people go back to their friends and family. When it's plentiful, you can, you know, you be like, ah, screw my family, I'm going to do things on my own, right? Yeah. Um, that's what's, that's the problem here. So as the energy ceiling descends on us, that space between the efficiency floor and the energy ceiling is shrinking. The walls are closing in. We're getting squeezed out. And that means it's incentivizing lower scales of cooperation. And it's incentivizing, but you know, perhaps the, the, the existing societies that we have coming into conflict with one another and fracturing. So my answer, you know, so I deal with like the long piece, like why is it that violence has declined? So we have we have models that basically say, look, you know, you know, what we're actually if you look at this long piece and you say, oh, look, everything has declined, you know, whatever the cause might be. But well, what about World War One? What about World War Two? What about Rwanda? What about the crack epidemic? Oh, those are blips. Those are, you know, those are just noise. 
in our model, they're not noise. They're part of the same process. So why has violence declined? Violence has declined because the size of our groups has expanded on the back of these energy technologies. It is We have been incentivized to work at a higher scale because the rewards per person are larger. We can build big companies. We can, you know, we can, we can, we can enjoy a high quality of life as long as there's enough per person. And so, as a result, the conflict within those large groups, your probability of dying within those large groups is much lower. But it also means that the probability you you always have lower scale conflict. So there's always like the potential for corruption because those same innovations in in efficient use of energy mean that you can use fewer people to access the same amount of resources. A company can come in and take the resources of an African country, cooperating with just a few local leaders at the expense of a population that can't engage in sufficient collective action to displace the company and the you know and the cronies in government, right? Um, Putin isn't carrying you know oil fields in his pockets, right? He's working. He's able to access these oil fields and pay his supporters and who pay their supporters. You know, I, I quote Ruka Bregman as saying. Uh, Billionaires supported by millionaires, and that's often what it is, right? It, it's people supported by, and, and you get this network of, of of political favors and political patronage that is more cooperative than the slower scale. And so that's always a threat. But the other thing that happens is that as the ceiling descends, or as the size of these groups expand, the probability of conflict also goes up. So if there is a conflict with a larger group, it's less likely there's fewer there's fewer kind of uh, entities going into war with one another. But if it happens, it's larger. Yeah. So in other words, according to this theory, to, according to this theory of, of, of the long piece, the world is safer but also more dangerous. Do you see what I mean? So mm -hmm. let me say it another way. We used to cooperate with and conflict at the level of families, you know, Hatfields and McCoys, uh, Capulets and Montagues, you know. Uh, then we used to uh, conflict at the level of, you know, kin groups, bands, uh, you know, tribes, villages, regions, eventually nation states, and then coalitions of nation states, often bound by a common religious and, and cultural history. You know, the Anglo world in World War II versus the rest of Europe, the NATO, European, you know, versus, uh, you know, maybe the Sino world. You know, you have, all, you have, you have, you have these layers, these these levels of cooperation bound. But that also means the scale, if they came coming to cut, there's fewer of them. You're not going to have this. It's going to be hard to get this large scale conflict. But if it happens, it's going to be much larger. So that's the story of World War One and World War Two, and these lower scales of of, of of conflict are the story of you know things like the uh, the crack crack epidemic. But they're part of the same process. Okay, but uh, of course people would also be asking about solutions. Yeah. Okay. So, from the perspective of a theory of everyone, in what ways can this kind of theory contribute to developing solutions to these issues? So, along many ways. So, you know, uh, I talk about the the required investments in what what kinds of energy technologies in order to raise that ceiling again. We now have a startup. Uh, ecosystem around fusion, which is great, but insufficient uh, insufficient innovation in the regulatory environments of nuclear and insufficient investment in nuclear technologies. Yeah. Um, so there's the energy side of it. How do we how do we crack a creative explosion? So how do we use the compass and an understanding of collective intelligence and the collective brain to spark a creative uh, explosion? Um, how do we create more opportunities for more people by tackling inequality, by uh, 
tack by basically trying to level the playing field every generation and create systems that bubble people to the top, but ensuring that more people are incentivized to try and still end up with a decent life even if they fail. How do we construct that system? So I talk about, for example, land value taxes as being uh, the, the, the best non-distortionary tax as well as pathways to getting there, right? Um, so I talk about how we can change our education system. So uh, next week I'm in Estonia and I'm meeting the people who founded the Tiger Leap Foundation. Estonia is a fascinating story. They spend less per capita than the OECD average, far less than the UK, US, Canada, Australia. And yet they are the top of the PISA tables outside of East Asia. They went from less than 50% of the country with a telephone to Estonia, you know, one of the most technically technologically so how did they do it? I'll tell you how they did it. You know, they uh, invested in technology, ensured that everyone had access to this. They created something called school life where teachers would share best practices that they got from all over the world. They were engaging in intellectual arbitrage, like magpies, taking the best practices, bringing it to their people. They had a culture that emphasized education, right? And that transformed Estonian society. And you can, you know, you hear the story in the book of, of the people who founded that and their stories, why they were able to do that, what led to them doing that. And it led to better outcomes for, for, for Estonia, for everyone, and those kids are now entering government. They're the ones who were trained in the system. They're now entering government. They're entering the workforce. And Estonia has changed forever, right? So I talk about how can we change our education systems? How can we become clever? How do we become brighter, in other words? Um, I talk about, you know, I should probably go to my, make sure I didn't miss anything in terms of these. There's a, so just to give you the description, part one of the book lays out the theory of everyone. Part two then says, okay, well, what are the policies? How do we apply this, which is my real interest? How do we apply these problems? To, to, let me read them to you, reunite humanity. So how do we get people to cooperate with one another? How do we allow for governance in the 21st century? How, it's very difficult to design efficient institutions, but we can design efficiently evolving institutions. So I talk about startup cities and I talk about programmable politics as pathways out of there. How do we shatter the glass ceiling through uh, taxing unproductive money, uh, reducing what I call wealth appropriation and encouraging uh, wealth creation? So inequality is not necessarily a problem. How it, how it's created matters a lot. How do we trigger a creative explosion? How do we improve the internet and how do we become brighter in order to save our species and, and get to that next level of abundance that leads to a better life for us and our children and all homo sapiens to come? Mm -hmm. Great. So just one last question then. And this is about the book in general and the framework you apply there. Of course, uh, I guess that we could say that you are very much interested uh, at tackling, uh, you, at understanding human behavior cross-culturally and trying to, uh, to have a better understanding of what is universal, in what ways our human cognition varies cross-culturally and the yeah. factors that play a role in that variation. So. What would you say are some of the biggest challenges in studying human behavior cross-culturally? Um, oh, I mean, there's lots of challenges. Um, a lot of the tools and techniques we've, you know, we're using were developed in a post-education Western, you know, weird, weird environment, and they're not immediately translatable to these other environments. Uh, if psychology had developed outside of the West, you know, even if we had a Chinese psychology, it would look very different, the way the world would be carved up. Um, it's logistically difficult to, you know, in some of these these sites. Um, I've seen some, you know, I, I've, I would love investment and I would love to, you know, like help with investing in a um, 
psychological observatories around the world where you know you ensure that you're doing theory-based research that uh, contributes to a an accumulating body of knowledge you're not just butterfly collecting but you are actually testing competing hypotheses with uh, perhaps a, a view to how this can be applied for the improvement of the places you're measuring but you know I was, as i said i was just you know just early this year i was in namibia and to get to our field site you drive on the on the on the main road, then you drive on the dirt road, then you turn off the road and you drive through the bushes and through ravines and dry riverbeds and eventually you reach some of these villages. And then you do it again, you do it again. You know, it's it's hard work, and so to scale that up uh, while we still have time uh, is is a real it's a real challenge. And I think you'd only want to do that if you if you're trying to if you're trying to discover truths that will help us. Uh, improve our education systems, not just in these places, but also in, the, in Western society. You you develop better theories of human behavior. You you improve on, just as when we first got the periodic table, we then understood what elements were missing, and just as once we had you know physics, we could then see where the missing problems were, and just as biology knew clearly where the questions were, when we rely on a theory of everyone, it becomes apparent what the questions are that will build on this. And so we can focus on those in these places. Great. So the book is, again, a theory of everyone, the new science of who we are, how we got here and where we're going. I'm leaving a link to it in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Muthu Krishna, just before we go, would you also like to tell people apart from the book where they can find you and your work on the Internet? Uh, just Google me. <laughs> a theory of everyone.com is where you can pre-order the book. Uh, Michael.muthukrishnan.com is my website that I try to keep updated, but just Google me, I guess. Okay, great. Uh, yeah. By the way, again, I really love the book. I recommend it to everyone. Please run and buy the book. It's it's Thank much. You. It's even more interesting than the conversation we've had here today. <laughs> There's so many things, you know. Until you, you know, I tell you. Let me let me let me end on something. You know, like one of my most frustrating things is as I, as I this is where I started, right? One of the most frustrating things was that there were, people aren't thinking about. It's like, imagine imagine being in a world of alchemy and trying to explain chemistry, right? People are like, oh yes, but how does that interact with the four elements that we know? I'm like, but no, those four elements aren't, what do you mean those four elements are? It's like, so it's really frustrating. So my hope is that this creates, you can argue with it, but I hope you do argue with it. And I think it creates a common base of knowledge from which we can build. I really want to give the science away. Great. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show to talk about the book. And it's always a pleasure to everyone. Always a pleasure myself as well. Thank you. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like, a comment. And if you can, please support me on Patreon or PayPal. You can find the links in, down in the description box. Just $1 per month would already be a great help. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. And I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Perga Larson, Jerry Mueller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf Alex, Adam Castle, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Ruinassi, Zup, Mark Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Kavanagh, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andrea, Francis Ford, Thiago Nunes, Fergal Kersen, Hal Herzog, Dun Machado, Jonathan Leibrand, John Linear, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, 
Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Leira, Tom Hamel, Sardis France, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londoño Correa, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevski, Nelek Beck, Guy Madison, Gary G. Alman, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litsky, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wisman, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Loaki, George Stéphanus, Chris Williamson, Peter Wolosin, David Williams, Diogo Costa, Anton Erickson, Charles Moray, Alex Shaw, Amaury Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Bangalore Atheists, Larry Dilley Jr., Old Erringbun, Starry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Grass, Isigor N., Jeff McMahon, Jake Zuel, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Thomas Dobner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story, Kimberly Johnson, Benjamin Galbert, Jessica Nowicki, Linda Brandin, Nicholas Carlson, Ismael Benzliman, George Coriatis, Valentin Steinman, Per Crowleys, Kate Von Goller, Alexander Hubbard, Liam Dunaway, BR, and Masood Ali Mohammadi. A special thanks to my producers Isar Webb, Jim Franks, Lucas Tafiniak, Tom Vanegdam, Bernard Ugni, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, John Carlo Montenegro, Al Nick Ortiz and Nick Golden, and to my executive producers Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadrian, Bogdan Canivets and Vege G. Thank you for all.